morning we continue our sermon series in Daniel. We're now in week 10, chapter 9. I'd love it if you would turn there uh, with me. If you have your Bibles, I'd love it for you to follow along with us while we work our way through Daniel chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 19. If you don't have your Bible along with you, I'd love it if you grab one of the paperback Bibles near you. Help one of the kids who are near you turn there and help them to follow along as we hear from God's Word. And I tell you, this morning is a passage that is a boon. It is a kindness, a blessing for the people of God. It gives us words that we need that need to be on our lips. I know that a number of people have already told me that this chapter has been precious to them in the course of the past week. And so let's look there. We're going to jump right in. We're going to read Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Please follow along with me. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keeps His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To You, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which You have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against You. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed Your law and turned aside, refusing to obey Your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. He has confirmed His words, which He spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquity and gaining insight by Your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord, our God, is righteous in all the works that He has done. And we have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord, our God, 
who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act Do not delay for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Heavenly Father, what an incredible word that you have inspired your prophet Daniel to record this prayer for us, that it would become our prayer. Lord, I pray just as the Scriptures informed Daniel's prayer so that he would know how to pray this prayer, that Your Word, the whole counsel of Your Word, that we even know the name of the mercy. That the whole counsel of Your Word would inform our prayer this morning and even humble us enough to pray. Thank You, Lord. We pray that You would do that. And if You would do that, give us Yourself, it would be enough this morning. We pray these things in Your great name. Your name, O Lord. Amen. It's an amazing prayer. It's a a prayer that's inspired by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Daniel. And and it it compels me to want to pray. And 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 I resonate with so much that is in it. It, Just the fact that it has the word O, and we're going to come back to that later, in it so many times, I find that so many of my prayers, especially of late, that most of the content has just been, Oh! Oh, Lord! Oh, God! This morning, I want to walk through this passage. I want to walk through it as deliberately as we can, even though it is a pretty lengthy prayer and our time is limited I want to look at it in five parts. We're going to look right at the beginning. And as we do so, I want to answer this question. The question of why does Daniel pray? Why do we pray? Why does Daniel pray? And I think as we find why Daniel prays, we will discover and be compelled to prayer ourselves. We begin by finding that the first answer to the question, why does Daniel pray, is because the circumstances of life confused him. I was thinking this morning that I might even change that word confused to troubled. Right? It didn't just confuse him intellectually, it troubled him deeply. Look at it with me, right in the very first verse. In the year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent, a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, and then the prayer 
continues. So it is set within the context of a particular season of life. I want to catch this up very quickly on the context. You see that we're talking about Darius, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Belshazzar. We're not talking about Chaldeans at all. We're not talking about Babylonians. We're talking about Darius the Mede. How did that happen? Well, if you go back to the narrative section of the Scriptures, go back to chapter 6, that last narrative story about Daniel and the lions, then you see it begins much the same way. Actually, the verse right before uh, Daniel 6, Daniel 5.31 says, And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Darius the Mede conquered Belshazzar the Chaldean, the Babylonian. There is a transition of power. There's a transition of kingdoms. Now, this is so important for us to see because it's the circumstance of life that troubles Daniel, that compels him to search the Scriptures and leads him in to prayer. That what Daniel realizes is that that the people of God had sinned 70 years before. And for years prior, they had not worked, walked according to the counsel of God's word, according to his law and according to his worship and with their whole hearts devoted to him. And so he saw in the prophets that the prophets had said that the Babylonians are coming, that evil empire from the east are going to come in and they are going to sweep over the people of Israel, over Judah and over Jerusalem and carry them off into captivity. That the Babylonian people were the people of Israel's judgment. And Daniel's looking around saying, looks like the Babylonians are gone. They were the people of our judgment. The people of our exile are done and they've been conquered by Darius the Mede. Oh God, what are you doing? I'm troubled. I didn't, you didn't say anything about the Medes or the Persians or anyone else that you've given visions about when you said where we would be judged. Is the Lord doing something different in these days? I think that's so important that we see that the circumstances of our life as they are informed by the Scriptures can trouble us. And we wonder, oh God, it doesn't seem to be, the circumstance that I'm in doesn't seem to be lining up with the way that you treat your people. What's going on these days. And what it did is as he looked at his circumstances and he was troubled in his heart, it drove him to the scriptures. We're going to come to that in just one second, but I just want to ask you, is there any circumstances in your life right now that you find troubling, you're confused by, you're unsure of, that have left you unsettled, the sort of things that wake you up at night? And I would encourage you in this, insofar as you are troubled in your spirit regarding circumstances of life or or greater national or world events, would that drive you to ask the word, what is it that you are doing, O God? It's exactly what happened for Daniel, and it's the second thing that drove Daniel to prayer. The first thing is that Daniel and the, the trouble of life circumstances was troubled and so prayed. And the second thing is that Daniel prays because the Word of God informed him. This is precious, and actually we're going to spend most of our time this morning on this, our second point. The Word of God informed him. Look at verse 2. In this first year of the reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book the number of years that, according to the Word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. You see, Daniel has been reading the books. 
the scriptures. And this is a, a wonderful testimony to the inspiration of the, the word of God that Daniel, who is actually a contemporary, a very, very young contemporary of an, an aging Jeremiah, would refer to the writings of the prophet Jeremiah as the scriptures, as the words that were given by the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah. And he looks at him and he searches them. And even his questions and the trouble of life circumstances drives him to read them intently. And here's what he found. There are two scriptures, and I really want to encourage you to do this, okay? Is I don't want you to listen to the sermon and say, hmm, that's interesting. And then go home and forget how to find these things. They're in the Word for you to find. Write down in your margin in your Bible. And if you're using one of the paperback Bibles rocking, write it in there, all right? Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. That is what Daniel was reading. We're reading the words of the prophet that the prophet leads us to understand. Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. Here's what Jeremiah says. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and that these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Now here's what Daniel sees. He reads that. He's like, man, it's been like 70 years. And now Darius the Mede has has brought an end to Babylon and, and to all of their iniquity that he saw especially rising up in Belshazzar. And Daniel saw the beginning of a prophecy unfolding right there in his midst as he's praying at his window, because we know that was his practice twice a day, every day. It got him thrown in a lion's den, we know. And the question is, what is the Lord going to do with the people? He's already taking care of the Babylonians. What, What about the people who are called by his name? And he keeps reading, and four chapters later, I don't think he had chapters, <laughs> all right? He just kept reading. And hour, four chapters later, in, verse, in chapter 29, he reads in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, check, I will visit you. I wonder, how long did Daniel meditate on that? Like when he saw that 70 years shall be completed for Babylon and I will visit you. The Lord is going to come into exile with us and visit us here. What's he going to do? I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. What a boon, what a gift for Daniel's soul to hear that. There is a second half of the promise. He's not only going to bring an end to the Babylonians, but he's going to restore his people. And then verse 11 you know it more than likely Jeremiah 29:11 For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope Let me ask you this when Daniel reads that in his window as he's searching and searching through the Scriptures, and he's praying before the Lord, and I'm sure he had that passage memorized. He might have had it cross-stitched on his wall. All right? This is an important verse for Daniel. But when he heard it, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And he's at the end of his life. He's at the end of his prophetic work. He's probably about 90 years old or so, maybe 85 
Tell me that didn't drive him to cry out, O Lord, over and over and over again, as he does in the scripture that we have in front of us. Now, this is so important for us this morning, especially if this is like your life verse. I want to be careful. I want you to hear what I'm saying when I, when I call this to your attention. We don't get to claim that promise. We don't get to walk around and saying, well, in Jeremiah 29, 11, the Lord said he promised to give me a hope and a future. Not if you read the verse right before it that speaks to a people. Unless you spent 70 years in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar and people like Belshazzar and got thrown in lion's dens and stuff, that passage is not a promise for us to claim. But you know what? We have something better than Jeremiah 29.11 for us this morning. We don't get to claim the promise for a hope and a future that we would be brought back to a land or something like that. Those were written for a particular people in a particular place. And that just heightens the glory of the thing. It's not some generic promise that you can make mean anything you want. It's a particular promise that was fulfilled by God for people. That's good news. And secondly... While we don't get to claim that promise, (laughs) we have a God who has claimed us. That's astounding. The same God who makes promises like this to a particular people in a particular place in Christ Jesus has adopted us as sons and brought us into his household that we would share in the same inheritance of having God as our God and that we would be his people. That's the God who has claimed us. And it should lead us to two questions. The first question that I would like to draw our attention to this morning is what is the Lord doing? Now, you can scratch your head, read newspapers, journal. All right, you can have conversations with friends and at community groups and try to answer what is the Lord doing, especially in a crazy week like what we have had. Or you can do what Daniel did. When you're troubled, when you're confused, you can ask the question this way, what is the Lord doing according to His Word? And then pray accordingly. I would suggest that we should ask the question perhaps even this way again. How does what the Lord is doing according to His Word, and He he has given us so much to know about His work in this age, As we ask the question, what is the Lord doing? How has he done it? And how does that resonate with my heart? Like, does it excite me to hear that the Lord is working through his church, that he has given us his spirit, that we can know his gospel and we've been sent to the nations? Does that resonate with our hearts? Perhaps one of the things that he is doing, because he said that he would do this in the people who are called by his name, that perhaps one of the things that he is doing is he is working our heart's disposition to be disposed to what he is doing according to his word in the world. Maybe one of the great works of God is to work a new disposition in your heart. And maybe he's even going to use Daniel chapter 9 to call you to go to the rest of the scriptures to do that this week. That's been my prayer for this study the whole time. That Daniel was so oriented to know the Lord and His Word that twice daily before the Lord, he had a heart that was humbled before him to be prepared to pray and to be prepared to walk with what we've called a gospel swagger. 
You know, I look at Cross Point Coast and I say, man, we have some preparation to do. We have some time in the word to seek out what he has actually said for the people of God on the foundation of the work of Christ. What is the Lord doing? And I think the second question for us this morning is what do you want? What, what, do, what do we want? If the Lord has told us what he is doing, we should ask ourselves, is that anywhere close to what I'm interested in? And I just want to, I want to make three notes, three observations. Um, as I look at Brevard County, okay, it's a lot to see, and, and you've, you've, many of you have spent a lot more time in Brevard County than I have. And then even as I look at Cross Point Coast, there are three things that I think are true among certainly others. They're not true of every single individual, but more than likely if you're a part of the culture, it's in us just as Daniel confessed things that I'm sure he didn't personally do, but he confessed for the culture of his people. There are three things that I would observe that we seem to want. And it's concerning to my own soul. The first one's very personal. I want to be in a better financial position. I do. It's in my heart. It's one of, I, I, I filed for a, a tax extension of six months, you know, and nothing makes you look at your tax, financial position than having to do taxes, right? And so I just got done with that in October 15th. And so I'm very well aware of my financial position. And so I, I want to say, is, is that what God is doing in the world? Is he working in the world to give me a better financial position? Because it sure is what I want in the world. And, and the health and wealth gospel would surely tell me that that's what he's doing in the world. But then I search the scriptures and I find Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think, but what, what do I do with this like thing? I actually want it. I, do want, I don't want to have to be stressed out about my finances. I just want a little bit of margin. Right, Lord? What are you doing in the midst of that? And I realized that what the Lord is doing is He is creating a people in Brevard County and in His church who will leverage all that they have for the sake of a kingdom that is eternal. That's what Matthew chapter 6 is holding out for us. That we would leverage everything that we have for a kingdom that is eternal. And I'll tell you why I am in the financial position that I am. Because I've leveraged all that I have to try and carve out a kingdom for myself. Does that resonate with anyone else in the room? Does it not resonate with our, like practically our whole culture? And so it gives me a prayer. As I search the scriptures, it gives me a new prayer. Oh God, please give me the discipline in my finances to be able to leverage everything I have for your glory, for the good of your church, and for the advancement of your mission. Your glory is where my treasure is. Is that is what your word says. And that begins to sound like an oh God sort of prayer. What about this? I look around Brevard County and I look around Cross Point Coast and I think this is where our hearts are. I want my children to get their acts together. <laughs> we could say that more colloquially if we would like to, but it's a heart wrenching desire of a parent just. You know, <laughs> is that what the Lord's doing? 
Is the Lord cleaning up your family so that they're not such a stress on you? Did he promise perfect children who would obey your every word so that you won't be stressed out and so that other people wouldn't judge you in the grocery store or at church? Matthew 19, 14. This should convict us deeply. Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Lord is creating a people, not, is not creating a people who have perfect children. Not perfect children who have smiling faces and straight A's. The Lord is calling upon a people who will bring children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord that they would be brought to Him and He would do as He pleases. And so that changes our prayer, doesn't it? We go from leveraging our children to make much of ourselves and put on display the glory of our parenting skills And then when our idol begins to fail us and cry, make whining sounds and act like the sinner that their parent is, we fit and rage. Instead, it creates a prayer when we realize, I'm just supposed to bring him to Jesus. Oh God, destroy the idolatrous notion that we would use our children to fulfill our fantasies of a perfect family. Oh, that we would make disciples of our children, that the children would come to you. That is what your word says. And there's a third idolatry. It's in our midst. It's the 500, are there not? I want my grades to improve, and I want my job to be fulfilling. Is that what the Lord is doing? Finals are coming up for some of you. And that job review is coming up for others of you. Did the Lord promise that you would succeed in your every plan and your every business endeavor? Consider James 4. Come now, you who say to today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The Lord is creating a people that trust Him in their every moment, that will make our plans. It doesn't say not to make our plans. And we will strive with discipline as it regards our grades and our job opportunities. But our personal fulfillment is not in our jobs or in our education. It's knowing that the Father has a perfect will. And He will bring it to completion and to know that He has attached the glory of His name to His people. That's where our joy is. That's where our fulfillment is. That We can pray, Oh God, may we join You in saying, Lord, not my will, but Yours be done. And how often does that not look like the next day is suffering? And we do so for the glory of the Father. Here's the deal. I've spent so much time talking with myself and talking with friends and and people in the church about what is the Lord's will for my life? What is He up to? Here's the fact of the matter. We don't have to guess at what the Lord is doing in the world. If we will read the New Testament and we will understand it on the foundation and the backdrop of the Old Testament, we will discover exactly what the Lord is doing. And here's what He's doing. He's building His church by means of His gospel. 
And then he gives us details as to how that looks in the daily life of his people in his word. You can read Romans chapter 12 and 13 and see how that plays out in the church, the implications of the gospel. And we can be sure of this, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the assault of the church by means of the proclamation of the gospel. If that's what we're doing, if that's what we're interested in, because that's the thing that succeeds. I don't know about the other things, three things that I listed or whatever is on your heart. I don't know if that works out well for you. But I do know that as we go about making disciples and the proclamation of the gospel in our hearts, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods, and in the nations, that will succeed. What if we were informed by the Word and we remember that wonderful line from the psalmist, if we delight ourselves in the Lord, then surely He will give us the desires of our heart. What if our delights were informed by the Word? Why does Daniel pray? Because he's troubled by circumstances? And because he turns to the Word and the Word informs his prayer. I think it more than informs, I think it compels his prayer. And then what does he do? Look with me, verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Why does Daniel pray? Because the character of God awed him. What you notice, he did not first turn to a prayer list that he'd made. He didn't first turn to a prayer journal and just start writing through the list of like praying for family, praying for grandparents, praying for leaders in the nation, praying for leaders in the church. His first thing was to turn his face to his Lord God. He was awed by the character of God. Just want to point it out to you very quickly. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God. Does that roll off your tongue when you start to pray? You know, one of the reasons why I just have certain things that I always say in prayer so I don't get stuck not knowing what to say and say the wrong things. Because there are some wrong things. Because the first thing that we ought to say when we go to the Lord in prayer is something like, Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. It should roll off our tongue, great and awesome God. The words of the Scripture should inform us as we go so we know who we're talking to. Verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. How often in prayer do you begin by saying, God, not only is your name holy, but you are righteous. I realize who I'm talking to. What about verse 9? To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness. The Lord is our righteousness. He is our mercy. He is our forgiveness. And when we grow in an awareness of the height of His holiness and the depths of our sinfulness, we realize who we're talking to. Do you see? Are our hearts rightly oriented in awe to the Lord God that that would compel our prayer? And we begin to see that the glory of the gospel then fills the content of our prayer. Because if we're in awe of His holiness and we realize the depth of our sinfulness, we realize that we have a great need for the gospel. 
And the cross of Christ begins to loom large in our life. And the next thing that we easily move into is praising God for His mercy and grace. So I want to draw our attention for just one second to to this two-word phrase, sovereign grace. It's in this text. We have His righteousness, His sovereignty, His great and awesomeness. He is the sovereign God. And then we have the God who is filled with mercy and forgiveness. Ian Duguid says this, If we forget God's greatness, then our prayers will be too small. Don't want to ask too much. Don't want to like take up too much of his time. And to be honest, he's probably not all that interested. Anyway, he's got so much to do. Like, I know nobody here believes that, but our prayers sound like that. They sound anemic. Like there are things that we're okay asking about, like how grandma's doing, right? About our neighbor who's been struggling with that thing, but but we have a hard time talking to him about the things that woke us up at night or that are troubling us this morning. And if we forget His greatness, then our prayers will be small. But if we also forget His grace, our prayer will also be too small. Because while we know that He could do it, we're just not sure if He will. I turned over to my my wife recently and I said, Sandy, I've been praying. I've been praying and, and will He do it? Does God care about the things that have been on our heart lately. She just started to tell me the truth of the gospel. She began to remind me not only, I know we can do it, Sandy, but will he do it? And she told me about his grace and my prayer has gotten bigger and bigger. You know, there's something beautiful in the passage. We can't see it in the, in the English translation. In verse 9, it says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. What we don't see is those words, mercy and forgiveness, in the Hebrew are plural. It doesn't sound right. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses. I don't even think that's an English word. But the point is to blow up for us that it's not just mercy, it's mercies. Like it's, it's the great is your faithfulness. Mercies new every morning sort of mercies that Daniel's talking about. Then when he talks about forgiveness, it's not like second chances forgivenesses, but don't come to me again after that. It's forgivenesses new every morning so that what I read to us earlier today is abundantly true. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to, I love this, the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You see, the Lord God is the sovereign God who has all the wisdom and insight of the universe, and He chose in His wisdom and insight to lavish grace. All of sovereign heaven bent on grace. That's That'll change your prayer life. That'll drive us to prayer. The third, the fourth thing that I think that we need to see in this passage, and it fills most of the content of the passage, but we've held it out before. I just want to bring it to you briefly. Is that Daniel prays because the weakness of God's people humbled him. The weakness of God's people humbled him. I just am wondering this morning, do you see your weakness in this passage? Verse 5. 
We've sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Does that resonate with your soul? Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Who has read the prophets? We haven't listened because we we don't even know what they say. Maybe one of the reasons, Lord, why I don't get what you're doing in this New Testament age, in this covenant that you have established with us by means of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ is because I don't understand its backdrop. Sorry, I didn't listen. Drive me to your word that I would be driven to prayer. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our princes, our, our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. I love that. From like the highest ruling level to the local leaders, to our families, to ourselves, it's shot through with weakness. Why do we pray? We pray because we're weak and we're in need of the Lord's comfort. There are days when my strength fails me. And these days, I have to tell you, it's God's grace through the book of Daniel to minister to my soul. I feel weaker than I ever have. My bones ache. I have learned lately, I I was just thinking about this metaphor as I was driving my car and it happened again. I've learned what the metaphor means when it says my heart sinks or I have a sinking feeling because I have this thing right here and it just keeps feeling like it fell a couple inches. Do you know that feeling? When your heart sinks and you just say, oh God, that's about all you got. I know my weakness. I know that I can do nothing. And, and one of the things that's happening is, is God is holding up before us what he's doing in his church, that he, he's calling us to be disciples that make disciples. And I look at it and I say, I can't do that. I, I haven't had good examples to show me how to lead a people to do that. And I don't think I've done that. I don't think we're doing that. God, oh, would you do that? We're weak. And all of a sudden, the most precious word in the Scriptures winds up being the shortest word. The word, oh. Psalm 36.10 has become precious to me of late. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you your righteousness to the upright of heart. When you you read this prayer, and I hope you do this week, don't skip the O. Don't turn it into O, Lord. In fact, I love the places, especially in the Psalms, where it's not just an O, Lord, but it's an O-H, because the H lets me go. Let's lean into it for a second. Oh, God, I know my weakness before you. Oh, Lord, rescue your people. Why does Daniel confess in this way? He confesses because he knows the sin of the people and he does it corporately. I think one of the reasons why we confess corporately, like we could just do prayer of confession. Hey guys, make sure you talk to Jesus during your week and then we're going to come here and celebrate. One of the reasons why we do it together because confession further puts our awe of God in perspective. Because if we hold up who God is, we might start thinking, yeah, we're singing with Jesus, you know? And then we're like, wait a minute, I'm singing to Jesus. A sinner is in the presence of a holy God talking about how holy he is and how righteous are his judgments. I have no business being here. You see, our confession puts in perspective the awe of his wonder and drives us, oh Lord, is there any good news? Is there any gospel for the people of God? 
Confession shows just how pure is his purity. Confession shows just how unattainable is his perfection. It shows just how great is his mercy, just how steadfast is his love, and just how condescending is his grace. That's why Daniel prays. Daniel prays because he knows the weakness of his soul and the weakness of his people. The last reason why Daniel prays is because the promise of God emboldened him. He was bold in this prayer, but the boldness came from somewhere. If you look at verse 12, you have something that happens that that Daniel realizes that what God has done, he has done in perfect fulfillment, fulfillment of his promise. It's just the first thing that he did that was promised was to judge. The Lord God is the righteous judge of the universe. That's what Daniel 12 says. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, nothing has been done like it's been done to Jerusalem. The Lord is righteous in all that he has done. Now, I want to draw your attention to another scripture that I would love for you to write down in your margin. In your Bible, right next to that verse 12, this is what Daniel is reflecting upon. He's reflecting upon Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26 is a a concise statement of the promise of God that what he would do among the people. It has three parts, a blessing, a curse, and a redemption. It's really the story of history, right? A blessing that if you will walk after me and follow me with your whole heart, I will bless you in the land and I will ward off the invader and I will give you the early and late rains. And then he tells you, but if you do not follow me with your whole heart, I will bring judgment upon you and I will destroy you among the nations, scatter you and make of you exiles. He says that in verse 27. But but if in spite of this, his warning, you don't listen to me, you walk contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sin. Verse 32, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle it shall be appalled, and I will scatter you among the nations. And Daniel's like, he did it. Faithfully confirmed his promise. But that's not all that the Lord has promised. There is a redemption note that is in Leviticus 26. And Daniel's like, is this next? But if they confess their iniquity, what's Daniel spent all of Daniel chapter 9 doing? If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. Verse 44, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. Daniel becomes bold in his prayer for mercy and grace and restoration because he remembers the covenant of God, and God does not lie. God's promise stands as the power beneath the confession. Is that true for you this morning? I'm I'm curious what happened in that just moment-long time while Matt stood up here and there was absolute silence in the room and it's super awkward. What happened there? Did you say, God, you know that? Yeah, it happened again. Not this time, though. Next week, I'll do better. Was that the foundation of your confession? Not, not in Daniel. 
In Daniel 18, he says this. Oh God, oh, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, past, present, or future, but because of your great mercy. You see, the prayer of repentance is the prayer for forgiveness, and it's not based on new promises to do better next time. The prayer for forgiveness is not a prayer that is predicated on a God who gives second chances. I hate second chances because I've been on third and fourth and fifth tries too many times. But we have a God that we come to because of His great mercy. Repentance is not claiming an offer that is held out to us to try again. It is claiming that the Lord has, with, with hands that are, that are empty of all counter offers. Really, it's, it's Matthew chapter five that blessed are the poor in spirit, not people who, who come to God saying, Hey, let's renegotiate the contract. But a people who have read the contract and are emboldened by it because the Lord is a God who has promised redemption for those who cry out to Him in faith. It's made solely and completely based upon the character and covenant of God. Does the reality of the promises of God embolden your prayer? You see, you and I, Daniel knew it. He knew the character of God that would make provision. And he trusted that he would make provision. But you and I know the name of the provision. You and I know Jesus Christ. We know that He is God Himself. And that the condescending love of God was more than to come and visit a people in the land of their exile, but to come and take on flesh and dwell among us in the land of our exile. And to do so in perfect righteousness unlike us. And then to die in our place on a cross for us. That He would take the shame. That He would take the curse that is in the covenant. That Jesus Christ is the provision, does that embolden your prayer? If we begin to pray prayers that sound more like what God is actually doing in the world, what will that sound like? That's what I want for the people of Cross Point Coast. I want us to be a people who are not just like, they're a praying people. It's like, they're a people who are independent. They're a dependent people, even for what they pray. He's told us so much. Prayers that sound like making disciples, sacrificing for the weak, for the glory of Christ, serving those who are in need. What if our prayers sounded like prayers that that begged for wisdom, for the leveraging of our time, talent, and treasure? What if we weren't afraid to beg God for what we know is already on His mind? That it would embolden our prayer. That we would discover the the mystery of His will, will revealed in the gospel. And we know that the proclamation of the gospel won't fail. What if we weren't afraid to confess what we know to be true about ourselves, of our lives, and of our churches? What if we were convinced of both God's sovereignty and His grace? You know, I've begun asking this for Cross Point Coast, and I want to invite you to join me. That God would prepare us for faithfulness. That He would take whatever He has already done in us, And His Spirit would continue to fill us and remind us of the truth of the Gospel and that we would walk in greater faithfulness, not so people would say, man, that church just has been really faithful in our midst. But so that we would say, He has taken a weak people who now point a community to Him. And that we would do so prepared not only to be sent to our neighbors, 
but that we would be prepared by God's grace to be sent to the nations. Lord God, what a a sovereign prayer you've given us, the call upon the sovereignty of our God that you would transform hearts like ours. Lord, would we be emboldened by Daniel's prayer to search the Scriptures, that we would know what you are doing. And we know part of what we will find is that you're making disciples in our midst, in our communities. Lord, that there would be one who is emboldened this morning to pray for the salvation of a brother, a sister, a neighbor, a husband, a wife, a roommate, a co-worker, someone they just met this week would be emboldened to share the gospel and work in our hearts to see what you're doing in the world and emboldened to say, I don't want anything but what you're doing in the world. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have. We know your name and we have this great gift of the comforter in our midst, and that you are still doing your work through your church, and it will be brought to completion. We thank you for these things, and we pray this in your great name. Amen. Amen.